E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Greg Del Piaz returns to the show after a lot of time in Tuscany. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. How about yourself? Nice to see you again. So you were just in Tuscany for like four months. Well, I'm writing a book about Chianti. And the reason I'm writing a book about Chianti is because I visited the region on a tour group with the Consorzio last October. Honestly, I thought it was just going to be a nice week in Tuscany. Why not go? But I was really surprised how dated my view of Chianti was. I drink a lot of Chianti. I guess I really don't keep up that much with the producers. Um, I haven't given it the attention that it deserves. But while I was there, I realized that my perspective on Chianti was really circa 1995-2000, and a tremendous change has occurred there. There are many changes that have occurred there, and it really just piqued my interest. And I came back to the States after that visit and wanted to read about all the changes, but there was no book. The first thought was, I'm going to go back and ask people about these changes. And as I was planning my trip, I said, I should be writing all of this down. There's no book. There's no resource. So that's the germ of the the book. Because a lot of times with Italian wine, it seems like the literature is out of date. I think that that's true, except Piedmont's getting a ton of attention today. So that's really up to date. But I think most of it, it seems like it's out of date. The, the books are out of date when they're published. Everything seems to be more about the romance and the history than what's actually happening on the ground. And what were some of those things happening on the ground that really stood out for you when you got there? The most obvious one was this wholesale embrace of organic farming. The diffusion of organic farming is just amazing. And you'll talk to some smaller producers who have been doing it for their entire lives, and they'll say, oh, the big guys are claiming to be organic, but they're not really organic. So you can really slice and dice this very finely. But the bottom line is that at some level, all the certified producers are meeting some benchmark of organic farming. And I really don't, I understand that farming 400 acres is different than farming 10 acres. And if you can do 80% of what the small farmer does to save our environment, I'll be very supportive of your efforts. Maybe not the wine you make in the end, but certainly the effort you're making to be a better custodian of that land. When you say that, does that imply that the wines are better because of the farming or that they aren't? 
I think organic farming is great. I'm very supportive of it. I think conventional farming, what we call bizarrely enough, conventional farming is terrible and it poisons the earth and it's just an obscenity. But I don't know that organic farming per se makes better wine. Small organic farmers have to pay so much more attention. And I think it's a combination of things. I think organic farming can certainly bring harmony to plants. They become more resistant. But I also think that the the close attention that's required from truly organic farming means that the proprietors, the vineyard, whoever's managing the vineyard also falls in harmony with that vineyard. And after years can begin to understand what's needed before it's needed and exactly how much it's needed. Here's um, an example of a big farmer, a big, a big production. I forget the, the size. I think it was a 40 hectare, so a hundred acre vineyard. And they were explaining to me how they use satellite imaging and GPS to control how much of any chemical is applied in a specific point. They can see there's less, less vegetation, therefore they need less of this. And that's great. It's a great, great use of technology, and I applaud it. But the guy who's got 10 or 15 acres knows that. He walks those vines, he walks those vineyards, and he understands, uh, I think, a little bit better exactly what's happening. Maybe not in every vine, but certainly every little 10 meter by 10 meter part of the vineyard. And what is the average holding? I mean, is it more like the 40 acre guy or is it more like the 10 acre guy? Well, it's interesting. The world of Chianti is really still very tied to the sharecropper system, Mazadria, that was in Tuscany until the, the end of World War II, but really probably lingered until the early years of the 1970s. And what that entailed was you'd have small poderi, 15 acres, 20 acre holdings where a family would live and farm and they would give half of that up to the landowner. So the landowner would have maybe 200 hectares under cultivation and 10, give or take, poderi, 10 sharecroppers. So what you see today are the remnants. You see significant estates of 200 hectares. I, I was surprised how many estates, they're not all under vine, but they have 200 hectares of land. And those are a lot of the older ones, a lot of the ones with castle in the name, and a lot of the names we're very familiar with. But you see the smaller people came in later and either bought these poderis because they were abandoned after the sharecropping ended, or are the offspring of the families that have farmed those lands. And those are, tend to be, I mean, for argument's sake, 15, I would say 15 acre vineyards. There were states that had multiple farms within them, and those farms each had their own family that worked them. And the family paid rent through the crop. And then that system went away, but it really didn't go away that long ago. It's shocking how, I mean, it's a feudal system that was centuries old. And you know, it, it really disappeared. Probably most people will say the 60s were the last sharecroppers, the last mazadri. But you can talk to people who say in the 70s, they were still paying 50% and still finishing out their contracts. And so you see vastly different parcels, people who have a piece or one of those small farms, what would have been one of those small farms within an estate, and then some people who have whole estates. Yes. That's basically how it breaks down roughly. And so what do you think is encouraging producers at both of those size scales to embrace organic farming? There's no doubt that the larger producers, I think, are significantly driven by marketing. I'm not privy to the decision processes for everybody, and I 
tend to hope that everybody feels that this is really the right thing to do, but it's also the right time to do it. Otherwise, they would have done it before. You feel like it's gotten through the message to these producers that consumers are interested in this and they feel like they need to respond. Absolutely. There's definitely an, an advantage to a whole region because the goal is for all of Chianti Classico, I'm really talking about Chianti Classico, organic is diffused throughout the entire region, but there's a Biodistretto, an organic district in Panzano, and they're trying to make the other communes, the other villages within Chianti Classico also organic which is a fantastic thing, which extends beyond winemaking. For example, Panzano petitioned the state to stop using herbicide on the side of the road, and the state agreed eventually. So it's a very, it, it can be a very powerful force to move both public opinion and public practices. And I think when you see something like that happening and you're a big producer, you say, well, they're these smaller producers and they're not all necessarily tiny are doing very well with it and it's a great message so why don't we try it everybody said everybody although no really everybody said that they started by using one parcel you know everybody is very cautious but tuscany is warm it's dry there's been tremendous work on clonal selection for sangiovese so you can find grape clusters that are very loose so it's proven to be pretty easy to do it rot pressure is not huge no no it depends on the year i shouldn't say no but the soil is very generally very rocky drains very well there are low-lying vineyards that should, probably shouldn't be vineyards and probably cannot be farmed organically because the, the fog sits there and they're sitting in basically pools of water but for the most part where there were vineyards historically they were farmed organically and tuscany is real italy entirely but tuscany is very tied to the past because the past, the distant past is very close. Like we were saying, we were talking about 35 years ago, there were sharecroppers, peasants. These are peasants. Sharecroppers is a nice way to say it. So people are very tied to the past. And people, I'm 50 years old, people my age remember when chemicals were introduced, basically. So organic farming, it, to them, is conventional farming. So it's very easy for them to, to go back to that. Oh, I see. So the chemical era is just kind of a weird aberration for them. And they still have within living memory the idea of organic viticulture as being a thing that can happen because they've witnessed it in their own lives. Oh, absolutely. I met, I'd like to say many, it probably wasn't many, but let's say almost a dozen roughly people who are still working in their 70s and 80s. And they all went down the path of producing. They're all small producers. They all adopted the chemical regimen of the 60s, and they all abandoned it within 10 or 20 years. It's easy for them to say whatever they want today, but they said everything died. It was weird. It was, it was bad. There were skull and crossbones on the containers. These are poisons. Why were they using them? And then they questioned it because they knew that they made great wines, you know, and they're in the faded memories, all wine is great. Great wines without all this chemicals and without all the expense. And that's something that's very interesting because as the organic community matured, they realized that in almost every year, and there are aberrations like last year where they had to treat almost nonstop because it rained every day, they save money. They have to do less because their vines are stronger. Uh, the, the greatest sort of messaging from winery owners was that after 10 or 15 years of farming organically, they 
don't really even have to drop fruit anymore. The vines are, say, 25 years old. Everything comes into harmony. So they're saving manpower. They're saving trips through the vineyards because everything is stronger. So th that's another motivation. We were talking about marketing, but if you can save money making wine, it's not a bad thing. And frankly, Chianti needs to save money because it's a difficult grape to grow, Sangiovese, and it's not really a particularly valuable wine. Is it give somebody a little bit of a different picture for how they want to treat their own vineyard when they know that they're going to give it to their own family when they die? I think so. And I think it's even more important when they got it from their father, grandfather, their fifth generation. Another thing that we don't think about that often is that even today, people who are actually farmers in Italy tend to have a garden, tend to grow, if not all the produce that they need for the year, the vast majority. And that's there. That's somewhere between their house and the vineyard. And they don't want to poison that. So I think that there's a real appreciation the land has been the only constant to their family over the decades or centuries. It was that's before there were jobs in factories, that's what supported them. And I think that the economic crisis in Italy was very strong. It was really devastating for many regions. And a lot of young men either did not leave home or returned home. And the fact that you went home and with a small amount of energy helped your parents farm this, whatever it was, 300 square foot garden, I think that that was an influence in the appreciation for organic farming. This is our home. This is, this is what keeps us alive. We should keep it alive. And you mentioned about research into Sangiovese clones. There was a big project called Chianti Classico 2000. And they, so go back a little bit, 1960s, chemicals. Why are they using all these fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides? Because Italians were drinking, I don't remember the exact number now, but it was something a long 100, it was more than 100 liters. In Tuscany, it was certainly more than 100 liters of wine per person per year, women and children included. They needed to produce a shit ton of wine, just a massive amount of wine. Today, it's about 30 liters per person. Um, so they don't need as much wine. And you can see that there have been moments in time that have really influenced that drop-off. But it's been a pretty slow and steady drop-off over the past four decades. But that, that just goes back. In the 60s, everybody wanted to plant clones that had clusters as long as my arm, kilo and a half, three-pound clusters, uh, as many as you can support on the vine, get to 12% alcohol, spectacular, everything's good. Of course, the quality was not that great. And they realized that in the early 80s, that they had filled their vineyards with these overproductive varieties and particularly vegetative cycle was they tell me it was impossible to control. It was, you couldn't, you couldn't really prune because pruning just stimulated more vigor. And they ended up with this mountain of leaves and yields that were mind blowing. So they said, we need to figure out what we're doing here. <laughs> Chianti's got 300 years of history and in all honestly, they only started asking questions at the end of the 70s. And they had this long project where they planted different clones, selected for small clusters, small berries, loose clusters, on different rootstocks and different soil types throughout Chianti Classico region. And they worked on this project for several years and found several official clones, I believe it was seven in the beginning, there are far more today, that were recommended by the Consortio for producing premium wine. 
And that there's been a significant adoption of those clones. I think that that also stimulated when these clones were presented to growers. I think it sort of stimulated people to take a look at what they had in their vineyards. And there still are not a tremendous amount, but there's still some vineyards planted before the 60s, especially small little plots behind the house, you know, quarter acre, whatever. And some going back to maybe 125 years old. And there's a lot of genetic diversity there. And I think that that today you'll find that the clones, which were very popular in 2000 to 2005, 2010, are not being supplanted by Masal selections from carefully cultivated vineyards, but are certainly being augmented in a way that, that wasn't happening. So it's a really, it's a great time for Sangiovese because you have these clones which allow people to make better quality wine, maybe not great wine everywhere, but certainly better quality wine. And then it piqued their interest to find these other clones, which I think really combined with the, with the approved clones reveal the potential of Sangiovese and, and Chianti. So basically that project happened during the seventies, kind of the first post-war push into grapevine research of Sangiovese and Tuscany. And then it happened again later. Yes. Yeah. There was the first go through where we're going to find the biggest clusters. We is, we need to make the most wine and we're not going to think about quality. And then the uh-oh moment where we've got terrible vineyards and we're making lots of bad wine. And we, I think everybody of a certain age remembers Chianti when it was lots of bad wine and they did a great job, you know, credit to them for recognizing the problem and putting together a really professional in-depth effort to solve the problem. I don't think that they've, it's not a, the project's not finished because the one variable that they couldn't control climate has changed since they created this clonal selection. And I think that that's more to the detriment of the clones that were chosen. People picked clones that were working well in a certain climate. And then that climate marker has moved. Yes. So you're ending up with even smaller clusters, smaller berries, higher alcohol. I mean, alcohol was certainly factored in, if not directly tangentially, by berry size. You know, they were they were looking for small berries. They were looking for grapes that wouldn't suck up a lot of water. And they got them, and they worked really well. And they still work really well. If you pick a lesser year, in quotes, you'll, I think you'll find, to my palate, you'll find generally more interesting wines. I wouldn't call them better, because 2011 is a lesser year in a different way. It was a warm year. Um but the Sangiovese, for the most part, everything's coming together. The clones performed well. The people who are farming understood what to do in a hot vintage. And they got bigger wines, certainly more alcohol, but with good acids and good tannins. Um, but if you take a vintage like 05, people who picked, who waited after the rains, or 08, I think you really find wines that reveal tremendous terroir. And I think that that is the marker of a great wine, the combination of the fruit that you get and the place that it's grown. So Sangiovese, you're saying that there's numerous clones. They've been selected through different projects. Should I stop thinking of it as one grape, really? Or I, I don't know if I've had enough exposure to answer that question. I would say that I have stopped thinking of it as one grape. And, but it's more, what does it do where? Because the if you plant it on clay or you plant it on sand or you plant it on galestro, you plant it in Alvarez's soil, you're going to get tremendously, tremendously different wines. 
So where do those variables run through? I mean, what is the range? Well, so it's uh, there are a couple of things. There, are, first of all, the availability of water. That's I think fundamental. The second, for the most part, you're going to be planting at different altitudes because these are soil ages. It's not always, but you're going to find more clay lower down. If you get a real pure galestral soil, you tend to be higher up. There's sand in places because there were oceans or seas rather that were there that didn't cover all the land. So you've got bands of sand running through everything. It's a real mishmash of soils. It's very complex. There are basically four soil types, so you could say well, it's not that complex. But the the way they've woven together there, Chianti is a very hilly. It's not mountainous, but it's very hilly region. And the way they've woven together makes for a very complex array of soil types. Is it possible that if you have a larger estate, you might be hitting up more of those soil types within your estate, whereas if you had a small property, no. you might just be getting one? Well, you, you get one or two in a small property, but th this frankly totally surprised me and blew me away that you can walk through a four-hectare vineyard, so a 10-acre vineyard, and you can see five distinct soil types in 10 acres. I didn't expect that because I, I sort of think, and I think a lot of people sort of think, this commune or region has got this soil type. And that just doesn't apply in Chianti. There are big estates that have very uniform soil. There are small estates, of course, that have very uniform soil. But it, for every uniform soil you find, you go to a different place and you start walking the vineyard and from top to bottom or, or right to left, you can see the, the color of the soil change, the type of rock. It's very complex, and I, I, I was during my second visit there that I started to think, holy shit, I understand why nobody's written this book, because this is, it's not, again, Chianti gets a, a fair amount of respect, but it's not thought of as really one of the great wines of the world. So why would somebody devote all the time it takes to go and understand and learn to write a book? I did it because I'm a little silly and I like the wines and I had questions that needed to be answered. So the book is sort of... Um, and let's be honest, you like Vitello Tonato. And I, yes. Uh, I don't mind living in Italy for 80, 90 days a year. It agrees with me. But does that imply that there's a lot of different soil mixtures and maybe for that reason there was a different grape cocktail that was used for Chianti, you know, when we think of all the different grapes that you could use for a Chianti, and that over time we've winnowed it down to fewer and fewer, even though the soils are still mixed. I think it's a very valid supposition. One of the real interesting things about all these trips was being able to taste Mamalo, Canaiola, Colorino. What did you just call me, dude? <laughs> um, from all these different places, and there are like Folletonda, Barceletta, there are I have no idea how many indigenous varieties there are in Tuscany, but I, I tasted at least a dozen, probably 15, in addition to Sangiovese. So I think that that's, it certainly makes a lot of sense that people in the past who understood their small piece of land a lot better than many people do today said, this is a better place for this variety. This is a better place for that variety. Like I could see that being a justification for using white wine grapes in the blend. If you had, you know, soil that, like in Burgundy, People plant the Chardonnay where there's limestone, and they plant the Pinot Noir where there's more clay. You know, obviously, they make, all have some, right? Or then, most yeah, of it has some. Make the best use of what they have. But I could definitely see someone saying, oh, okay, well, that parcel would be better 
for white grapes. So let's blend that in. And then years later, getting castigated for that by people saying, what do you what mean do you, you put the white grapes crazy. in the red blend? You know, I will go back to saying that this region's got 300 years of history as a defined region. Only started asking questions in the 70s. When the Mizadria was in place, they had something called promiscuo. That was the cultivation. So it would have been a row of vines, a three meter wide or so swath of grain with olive trees planted in it, another row of vines. There's no real culture or history of vineyards in Tuscany. Vineyards are a new thing. Oh, I see. It was interplanted. Everything was interplanted. Everything was interplanted. You Everything had the garden and the trees and something for the goats. And, then. and there still are. There, there are a lot of people have kept a small plot like that for more, it has to be sentimental purposes because it's very difficult to, to farm effectively. But that's how it was. And they planted varieties pretty much willy-nilly. They didn't know, they didn't know what they were doing. I mean, they really had no idea I mean, I was shocked to hear that really no Chianti producer had heard of malolactic fermentation until 1977, roughly. Up to that point, it was some sort of a magical thing that happened sometime either before Christmas or in the spring. That's interesting because, you know, in, in Burgundy, it's like in the 50s. You would think that they would get out and, and explore, but they just, they were really making food. They weren't making wine. Chianti was food, and it was treated just like the grain and just like the olives, and it didn't require any improvement because that's what it was and that's what they were used to. To the hills for a second, you're saying that with the erosion off the hills is basically the deal, or was that why there's different soil types? It's like alluvial? or Well, the top of them, well, it's a, there's some alluvial. There's, there's a lot of colluvial soil. There's a lot of just, galestro is this very soft schist that when it's exposed, cracks goes through a crack freeze cycle and in three years a field of cholesterol will turn into what looks like sand but it's really fine particles of clay it's just clay that's been condensed under pressure so there's a lot of that there's a lot of getting to the top of a vineyard and and, and finding that you're standing on solid cholesterol and when you go down through the vineyard you realize that near the top there are whatever four inch square pieces and then three then two and by the bottom you're getting into the sort of muddy sand so there's a lot of that. Then there are these bands of sand. There's a band of sand, for example, in lower, under, Castellina's a long commune, and it's got a hill, high hill, and it really goes down very gently, probably, I don't know, it's probably a 200-meter drop, 650-foot drop from the top to the bottom. And somewhere north of the bottom, maybe at 300 meters, probably a little bit, well, 300 meters, there's a band of sand. And that was explained to me is there was a sea, in that area before at the bottom there's clay and there was basically a beach and this beach has left its mark sort of like a bathtub ring throughout the region and then there's the clay and then there's so there's alluvial soil there's not a they're not there really aren't significant alluvial fans or anything the way i would tend to think of alluvial soil uh, in vineyards mostly because people were smart and didn't plant vineyards on the valley floor there's some vineyards here and there on valley floors today, but for the most part, the vineyards are on the hillside where you couldn't grow grain or other food crops. You grew olives and vines. The elevations tend to vary a lot then too. It varies between 250 and 650 meters. That's the basic band. There, are, there might be something marginally higher. There's 
might be something they're probably not inconsequential surface area lower those vineyards are either maintained by people i were i wasn't really interested in or produce wines that for whatever reason i wasn't interested in but the vast majority of quality vineyards all quality vineyards probably between 250 650 meters where did you visit? Did you stay in certain areas? or I stayed in Chianti Classico. Every time I rented an apartment in either the north, south, or central part of Chianti Classico. But I visited all the regions in Chianti Classico, all the sotozone, all the subzones of Chianti. So Montalbano, Rufina, Sinesi, Aratini, all the subzones. And Chianti sort of wraps around all of that. I didn't meet with a lot of producers of straight Chianti. I tried to meet with some, and when I told them I was writing a book, they declined the opportunity to get together, which I thought was very surprising. There are a couple of Chianti wines that I tried, but I think that for the most part, there's a reason why there's, there are subzones in Chianti Classico, because I think Sangiovese needs hills. Sangiovese does not, that's not true. It loves being in a flat water-rich, rich soil place, but it doesn't make good wine. And I think that everybody understands that they can really make good wine. It, to me, a, another thing that was sort of surprising coming out of this was the fact that I tasted some great wines, uh, particularly at their price points, and particularly with food. And I'm involved in sort of a wine geek world where Chianti's never thought of, never. And you found great wines and probably great wines throughout the region. Yeah. There's at least one producer in every subzone making super wine. So how did those subzones really vary for you when you looked at the growing conditions? I mean, how did they tend to stack up? There are seven subzones, I think, if I'm not mistaken, and Rufina. Rufina is different. Rufina is a special place. It has a cooler climate than Chianti Classico. It has similar terrain. All the other regions sort of ring around. They're, for the most part, adjacent to or in very close proximity to Chianti Classico. And Chianti Classico is sort of this protected area because it has taller hills. So the sub zones are on softer slopes, more exposed to weather conditions, generally warmer weather conditions. And the soil types are different. There's more sand as you go towards the coast. There's more sand in Montalbano. The Colisenese around Siena is the easiest example to sort of reference it includes montalcino it includes montepulciano and it includes castanova baradenga which also goes over into chianti classico a very big zone obviously castanova baradenga part is the same soil a little lower more open but adjacent to and very similar to chianti classico montepulciano and Montalcino are completely different. So there's a great variety there. So you have in all these other zones, the piece that's contiguous with Chianti Classico, where you find wines of similar style, certainly similar quality. And as you go farther away from that heart, the Siena part has these two great appellations where they make different forms of Sangiovese, but great wines. The other regions don't. As you go farther away from that historic heart, you still can find very good wines, but they lose a little bit of distinction. And what are the differences between the sub-areas of Chianti Classico? Like if I'm in Rada, how does that differ from the area of Casanova Baradenga that's in Chianti Classico, or how does it differ from... This is a fabulous question. One of the projects that the Consortio 
of Chianti Classico is working on today is a zoning project, zonazione, where they want to have very finely delineated regions, zones. There are great zones in Chianti, but they're going to end up using just the comune, just the villages, which has some sense. But as I was just saying, in Castellina, you've got a very big expanse, completely different soil types that go from 250 meters to 450 meters. So it's very difficult to generalize about most of the zones. Everybody will do it. Panzano is easy because Panzano has this concadora, this golden bowl, which has turned into a, the roasted slope. They're going to make cote roti there soon. Because of climate change, we're saying it's getting yeah, warmer. It's warm. It's warm. Um, it's not unusual for the greatest vineyards to get a little too warm. Uh, for me, it's warm for me. But there you have big, powerful wines. And it's a style that's been successful. So even if producers don't have all the raw materials to make that style, they're going to push to get there. Although there's some, but the, again, there in Panzano, you've got people who are on the north side of the ridge who are making more, much more elegant wine. Rada has, there's a group of producers in Rada who are very well situated. And I think have the best of everything. They have very poor soils. One of the greatest things about driving around through Chianti is you can see when you start moving from one area to the next, you can see oak trees go from 60 feet tall to 10 feet tall. And you drive along these ridge lines and it's all scrub and there's nothing above 10 feet. And it's not just the wind because you can go down the slopes 150 feet. There's just nothing in the soil. For me, that's that makes good wine. That's good Sangiovese. And so they're blessed with that, a good climate, good altitude. So I think Rada has the potential to make the most complete balanced wines. Greve is a very big zone and it was my introduction to the variety of the soils there because you have Castel di Verrazzano right next to Vicchiamaggio and one has all clay and one has no clay and they're two bigger estates on hills. So it's very difficult to say anything about Greve. You'll also have La Mole in Greve, which is like a small Rufina, makes a very particular wine. But a lot of the producers in Greve make a wine that's bigger but softer than Panzano. Um, Gaiola and Castellina have great high-altitude vineyards, which is what they're known for. And I think historically that's where most of the vineyards were. So they make a more elegant, more fine style of Chianti Classico. The generalizations, I don't think, necessarily really work. I think it's just too complex. I think you need to really get into smaller subzones for to be able to. Eventually, they will. Eventually, you'll get into crews or villages that have five or six producers where there's really something special going on. There's a lot of friction there because if your vineyard is not in one of these special places, of course, you're not for it. And a lot of the larger producers who have a lot of influence have large vineyards, which are maybe not in the best place. You know, that, that, that's not the purpose of a large producer to make the best wine. They need to make a good wine at a good price. So I think they need to simmer down a little bit. And I guess that leads to the question of what is a good Chianti? I feel like stylistically, maybe because of what you're saying, you know, about the different soil types, the different elevations, the different clones that can be evolved, different grape mix. But I feel like people's conception of what's a good Chianti is like all over the place. It is all over the place. I'll tell you what I, you know, I can tell you what I think a good Chianti is, or I, it's easier to tell you what I think a good Chianti is not. A good Chianti is not supple. Sangiovese, 
I, I love Sangiovese. It does not have aromatic complexity of the greatest wines. It does not have the glycerin richness of some wines that are considered great. It's got great acidity. It has a moderate level of austere tannins. It is the quintessential food wine. It is fruity, but not candied or saccharine. It has a really fantastic ability to reveal minerality, which is probably the most highly thought of characteristic of wine today, I think, in many circles. And it's not easy to drink, and which is, it's Achilles tendon, because it, it's really, it really, at the end of the day, needs food to balance it out. But it, when you get a good bottle of Sangiovese, a good bottle of Chianti at the table, magical things happen. But it seems like sometimes it's in the red fruit spectrum and sometimes it's in the, the darker fruit spectrum. I mean, I don't know a lot of grape varieties that, that have that. Anytime you pick out a bottle of Chianti, if you don't know it already, you're not sure which you're not sure. kind you're of not fruit sure. profile you're going to get. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with the adjunct grapes, but any blending grapes. Merlot has been the most popular, say, for the last, I don't know, arbitrarily decade before that it was Cabernet Sauvignon. Sanchevese does not have a particularly strong character. It's surprising how little Merlot you need to add to it to really push the red fruit into the black fruit spectrum. And also there's climate change, absolutely pushing things, making them a little darker. But I, th I think that I would have to really think about it and taste more wines, but I think that it's the blending grape that has the biggest effect on that black fruit, red fruit spectrum. Most of the Chianti is for me is in the red fruit spectrum. Has that blending partner lineup changed at all in the last few years, or has it been pretty consistent? Well, it was Cabernet. So Sangiovese was historically, I mean, there's the, the Baron de Ricasoli, the Brolio recipe of Sangiovese, I don't remember, Canaiolo Colorino, the white grapes. And that was created for various reasons. Before then, historically, if you talk to people, there is a general consensus that Chianti was made the A wine was made with 100% Sangiovese or 90% Sangiovese. Oh, interesting. That was considered, but it was only maybe three times a decade. And that's why the recipe was created, because they needed wine every year. So this sort of recipe lasted through the 60s into the 70s. And then people started to focus on making quality. And unfortunately, Italians don't have a tremendous, maybe not all Italians, but certainly Tuscans and Chianti, and people in Chianti Classic are going to kill me for keep, I keep on saying Chianti, but I'm talking about the whole region. So, um, just did not have confidence in what they were doing. And maybe it was correct because their salaries were dirty and their wines were defective and they had these terrible clones. But they looked to France. They absolutely took inspiration from France. So, Chianti went through, we were all familiar with the heavy barrique period, which really is passing now. It's very hard to find a very heavily barriqued wine with Chianti Classico or Chianti on the label coming out of the region. You see it as IGT. You see it as IGT. And uh, you see it a lot as IGT because people like Barrique. They like second and third passage Barrique. They like the way it works with Sangiovese. Not everybody. I think that I totally see that fading away and people returning to Tonneau and Botte of 10, 15, 20 hectoliters, small Botte. So what you're saying is they break in the new barriques on the IGT and then they use that for the Chianti yes. a few years down the line. It's kind of funny, but yeah, that's, you know. Because they like barriques for the Chianti, but they want them with some age on it. Yeah. And they've got fairly significant markets 
for heavily oaked wines. Northern European countries, you know, a lot of producers have their 1990s wine still, and it's successful for them. So, of course, it would be stupid to give it up. So, you know, at the end of the day, you have to factor in business considerations. But then they went to, then they, they felt that their wines, for me, Sangiovese Chianti, very, it's a very elegant wine, and that should be the goal. But they felt that their wines were too thin. Again, maybe they were. So they said, well, what's the greatest grape on earth? Cabernet. So let's put 10 or 20% of Cabernet. Today, Italians are probably much more law-abiding, and they're probably much better policed than they were even 10 years, and certainly 20 years ago. So what might be 10% might be 20%. You could also bring in wine from the South and doctor things up. So there was a little bit of a cultural facility with doctoring their wines. And Cabernet really, dom for me, it dominates from the get-go because of its strong aromatics. But in the bottle, it continues to dominate. So that sort of faded away. And then they decided to use Merlot as a softening, rounding grape. And I think that's where we're at right now. We're at the end of the Merlot phase and the beginning of the either 100% Sangiovese or returning to autochthonous grapes phase. It's a fascinating time to be looking at Chianti because they're really just getting to the end of all the silly experimentation that they needed to do to prove to themselves that what their grandparents did needed improvement, yes, but was totally on the right road for their spot, for their soil, for their climate. So in a way, they had to go through an experiment to get the confidence in their own history. I think that's right. I think they had to go through the this grand experiment also because at the same time they were experimenting with their own varieties. And I think this, ultimately you make great wine in the vineyard and you screw it up in the cellar. And even today, so I've visited about 120 producers who I selected and I go and I'm like, oh my God, everything's so good. Everything's so good. And then I go to big trade tastings and you start tasting randomly and you're like, oh, Jesus Christ volatility over here, the oxidation over there, the unripeness over here, there's still a lot of easily corrected faults in non-professionally produced, and they're making it to sell, so it's their profession, but they're not working in a professional manner, non-professionally produced Chianti. And is that also a holdover of the sharecropping system in that you have a lot of small producers who maybe didn't get the education about making wine professionally and, and who just sort of had to figure it out on small properties? I, I think that's a big part of it. I also th think that one of the biggest part is the this sort of historical value of Chianti. Chianti is still cheap wine. It's still cheap wine. A lot of small producers who are making very good wines were very honest with me and said without their agriturismo, without the hotel that's adjacent to the property, they could not make the improvements they needed to make better wine each year. And as we know, if you're not improving your wine, your wine's getting worse. It's not staying the same because the benchmarks are moving. So I think a lot of these small producers who have had a steady enough local clientele to buy their wine at a marginal profit not had enough money to make any changes. And also there's the historical palate. My uncle likes wines with VA. I like wines with VA. He likes more than me because he's 90 years old. He's That's what he has experienced his entire life. So there's still a market for that. That's going to disappear, I think. I mean, I like VA, but in moderation. So I think that there's a little bit of a holdover market. And I think we're getting to the very end, which is sad for those producers because there are very few people who are jumping into 
by Chianti estates today. Is that true? Because a lot of times for Chianti, we hear about Chianti Shire and all of these English people and people from other countries who have come in, Americans who have purchased property in Tuscany. There are a lot of people purchasing property. There are very few making wine and almost none making wine successfully, either from a qualitative standpoint or from a financial standpoint. It's very difficult. We don't think about Chianti Sangiovese as being a difficult grape. Very difficult grape. How so? It needs a lot of care in the vineyard. It tends to be very vegetative. It tends to be very productive. The clusters can be very tight. Even these, it mutates like Pinot Noir. If you talk to people, and from my limited experience, it seems to be most similar to Pinot growing in the vineyard. Morphologically, the clusters are all over the place. If you're selling wine for 100 bucks a bottle, it's easy to make three passes through a vineyard and tell your vineyard guys, just pick the best clusters. If you're selling your wine for 25 bucks a bottle and your vineyard workers are seasonal workers because you really can't afford to pay people who are professionals to come back every year, you just can't do that. Um, I think that's one of the biggest issues is uh, the variety of ripening throughout a, a vineyard due to clonal variation in soil. So you're getting unripe, ripe, and overripe grapes, which everybody gets, but I think to a, a larger extent. And frankly, I think that that makes a great wine if you pick it when you're getting less ripe, ripe, and overripe. If you pick it in the middle. Right. And I think a lot of people wait until there are no less ripe. And you get ripe, overripe, and really ripe. Well, that could also lead into the whole, I don't know what kind of fruit profile I'm going to get when I pull a can black off the, you know, black dried fruit picking time. But so you're saying that within one vineyard row, you might have different soil types and you might have different uh, clones. I think it's more clones. Yeah. I think clone, you'll certainly, you certainly can have more soil types, but I, I took pictures of grape clusters and I'm probably stopped at 130 or, or 140 because they were all different size the actual shape of the cluster. It's just all over the place. And they often say that Sangiovese has wings that has like a, you Big know, ears. A, a, yeah, exactly. Like a second crop cluster at the yeah. top of it. So is that true all the time? Or? No, not, not all the time. And I think, I, I don't remember, I have to check my notes, Colorino or Canaiolo, I believe it was Canaiolo, has it a lot. One of the two, maybe half of the, the vines produce a second crop, small quantity, small little clusters, but a lot of them hanging out there. So did you find that producers pick those or do they leave no. them on? Most of them leave them on. Most of them leave them on. So that probably affects yield. Yes. Yields also are all over the place. Yields are roughly between 25 hectoliters per hectare and 90. So I guess something else that I'd be curious about, if I were a Chianti producer, am I thinking that I'm making wine to age or am I thinking that I'm making wine for pop and pour? So that's a fabulous question. And I think that Chianti's big strength in the world is that... It ages pretty well. I don't think it ages that well. I think Chianti, I, I like my Chianti roughly between 10 and 20. I like my Bordeaux Burgundy Barolo 20 or over, which is perfect. It's perfect. But also it, it doesn't, in my experience, really go through a closed period. It goes through a tough period. I think it's difficult to drink young. I think a good Chianti or Chianti Classico or Chianti Classico Reserva needs, let's say, four years of bottle age arbitrarily to really come around and, and achieve balance. There's no harm in drinking something that's freshly released if you keep that in mind, that it's going to be very nervous and edgy. I mean, they're acid-driven wines, and 
with the austere tannins, it's nice to give it a little time. But I think that producers should be thinking about, they should definitely be thinking about pop and pour because I think that's where the vast majority is consumed. But I think they, they should be shooting for the 10 to 15 year lifespan. I think the vast majority do. There are a couple who are trying to make great wines. It's a process in evolution here. So it's tough to say where the wines they're making today are going to end up. The wines they made 20 years ago aged pretty well. The wines they're making today, these big wines, are undrinkable in their youth. They're trying to make Bordeaux, and they should probably be trying to make Village Burgundy instead. Have we seen legislative changes that have affected how these wines are presented on the label? or in- the, the most recent change is the creation of the Gran Selezione denomination, not denomination, but label. I mean, there was the Chianti, it was, it's only for Chianti Classico, Chianti Classico, Chianti Classico Reserva, now they have Gran Selezione, which does require additional aging, it requires more dry extract, requires lower yields, but it's not a significantly different product from a Reserva in many ways. They're going to kill me when they hear that, but you're saying it doesn't necessarily have a terroir tie, even though it does has not to have be a terroir from, tie. It has to be. It has to be from a state-grown fruit. But if you have 400 he- acres or hectares, 400 acres, what does that mean? You're going to pick the best fruit. They, as with the Zonazione, the legislation started out really on the mark. There were a couple of original proposals, but the original proposal that sort of pushed the ball forward was Sangiovese single vineyard from a state-grown fruit. And then they said, well, we can't make just Sangiovese. Let's do 10% of whatever else. And that's the way it started. But then they lost the single vineyard and things got a little squishy from there. So it's a big first step. It's a good first step. I don't know that it helps small and medium producers. I think it really is more helpful for somebody who can pull seven or 10,000 bottles out of their production and do a little bit of different seller treatment and slap a different label on. And then there are big producers who are making hundreds of thousands of bottles of it. So it is what it is. And how has it been embraced in the markets? In the U.S. market, it's been quite successful. I think the Italian market is less successful because the the wines are generally more expensive. And I think that with many consumers around the world, they're not ready to pay up for a new level of Chianti Classico. And I think they're more right than wrong. I think that the producers need to prove that what's in the bottle is actually a better product. And I think at the end of the day, the only way to do that is to go and make this a single vineyard product. Make it mean something. And what markets are strong for Chianti in the world? The U.S. is a very strong market. Japan is surprisingly a very strong second or third with most producers. Northern Europe, of course, the adjacent countries, Switzerland, Austria, Germany through Austria, very strong. France is very weak, not surprisingly. And then there are the Scandinavian countries where a lot of the heavily barriqued wines go. Uh, Canada is an important market. Most producers have moved away from focusing on one market. Not all. There are some who sell 90% of their production in the U.S., but after the financial crisis, they became aware of the, the perils of that. There are a lot of people who are selling you know, one pallet in Brazil, one pallet in South Korea, one pallet in South Africa, half a container to the U.S., and then the rest throughout Europe. Italy is a surprisingly weak market for most producers. I understand Italians fairly well. I know that they drink. They tend to drink locally. Wine is made throughout Italy. But I, I was surprised how few producers have more than 
5% of their production sold domestically. I know the production size is totally different, but sometimes Chianti kind of reminds me of the Barbaresco situation where it's like, oh, well, you could have that, but if you want a really top expression, you get a Barolo. Or with Chianti, it's like, well, you could have a nice Chianti, or if you want a top expression, you'd get a Brunello. I think that up until this point, it certainly has, except with a couple of exceptions that interestingly don't have Chianti on the label. Montevertine, for example, that's the obvious one. Great wines, and I think that people into wine, if you say, what's the best expression of Sangiovese in the world, that's a top three. I don't, I'm not as big a fan of Brunello as a lot of other people are. I think that great Chianti is absolutely at the same level as great Brunello. A lot of people have asked me, you know, what's the best wines you try? What are your best? I'm not sure I can answer that easily, but I can say that there are producers like Monsanto, Castellin Villa, who make Chiantis that you give them 10 or 15 years in the cellar, and they are amongst the best. There are no better expressions of Sangiovese. You can prefer one over the other, but there are no better. I've had a hard time sometimes with evaluating Chianti because I feel like for a lot of the reasons that you named, the ball has moved over the string of vintages. So you may be given 30 vintages to have under consideration from one producer and maybe you get a chance to try a number of those examples just through blind luck or vertical tasting. But back in the day, they fermented in cement, they used chestnut to age, and and now they don't. (laughs) And, you know, it's new clones and the vineyard exposure has changed. And Maybe during that period of time, they did more blending and maybe they did less blending. And, you know, I feel like over and over again, the run of vintages is not uniform. So it's hard for me to go back and say like, oh, well, this wine's really good at 20 years old because I don't, I don't think they're the same wine. Like, I agree a hundred percent entirely. I think that basically you can look at Chianti, I'm just thinking of this now, but I was going to say in three periods, basically before 1985 and after 2005. And then there's that middle period where all sorts of crazy shit was going on and everybody was trying everything and it was just mass confusion. And they, they didn't ruin their brand, but they certainly damaged their brand, I think. But I think that they've returned to what they were, which is not everybody's doing the exact same thing, but everybody's got an idea of what the wine is supposed to be. And for the most part, everybody's pretty much focused on the same things now. They're focused on... Elegance over power, 8 out of 10 producers will tell you that. 10 out of 10 will tell you it, but 2 actually don't do it. And then they're, they're focused on expressing terroir, which is something new, totally new concept to them. Totally new. And they're realizing today that if you want to express terroir, a lot of barrique, a lot of cab, a lot of merlot, a lot of crazy shit in the cellar is not the way to do it. You want a light hand, a light touch. So I think that everybody's, everybody's backing off. There will always be people who are still using 50% new wood. There's still wines with 100% new wood. There's still people who are you know, doing concrete and it goes into old chestnut. But the end products are becoming much more recognizable as Chianti. Even the Super Tuscans are sort of calming down and being brought back into the fold. Besides what you just said about certain methods, are there things that really for you differentiated the good producer of Chianti from the really good, excellent producer of Chianti in terms of things in the vineyard, things in the winery that you saw that you think, boy, these are some of the accents that really made a difference. It's the dirt. It's the dirt. I mean, I've tasted wines 
fermented in concrete, aged in chestnut, and I tasted wines, stainless steel, into barrique, not a lot new. Both, I was blown away by that broad a variety. And at the end of the day, and this took a long time for me to totally realize, at the end of the day, I walked through the vineyards of every, not every, because it rains some days, but out of the 120 producers, I've walked through at least 100 of their vineyards. I spent at least an hour with each of those 100 producers walking through their vineyards. And the, the thing that was always obvious after tasting the wines was that their vineyards were in the shittiest places. They didn't have to do anything to the land because nothing grows there. There was never any herbicide or anything else. They're, they're seeding, trying to get some organic material in there. The exposures are not full south. They're either southeast or southwest, a couple are north. I've always thought and said that I think that vines need to struggle to make, they, they don't need any struggle to make great fruit. 1985 in Tuscany was a great example. It was hailed at the time as a great vintage because nobody had ever seen a crop that beautiful. And the wines were very good, but they weren't the most interesting. 88, more difficult, better wines. So I think that Sangiovese needs to suffer, needs to have its vigor held back a little bit. And I think that, that that's the most important factor. And the second most important factor, I was surprised that I found spectacular wines being made by trained enologists and by farmers. What you're describing to me over the course of this interview sounds like an area with a multitude of diversity. But when I look on retail store shelves in New York, I don't see that represented. I, I see, I wouldn't even say a handful of producers usually, whereas I see more diversity in the Brunello category, certainly more diversity in the Barolo category. You see more diversity in the Pinot Grigio category. It doesn't even compare to Champagne where everyone's like, oh, let's get you know a grower from this part of Champagne. Let's get a grower from that part of Champagne. I, I mean, I've never walked by a retail shelf in New York and seen like, oh, this is the Gaioli area or this is Castellina. And so like, you know, why might that be? And what does it say about the market that we kind of conflate all of these things into one? I think there's two answers there. I think the biggest answer, the overriding answer is that Chianti has been three brands. You know, maybe there were four, but when you think of Chianti, I think most people think of Rufino first and Antonori and maybe Frescobaldi. And these are big producers. And then I think it it's a problem in the buyers in the market who say, I don't need, I have a Chianti. I don't need another Chianti. And that problem originates with the messaging that Chianti sending out. They've always been very active and fairly successful marketing campaigns for Chianti Classico. Nobody else can afford anything. But they didn't understand what the message was, I think. And it's not their fault because nobody really understood until they got the clones sorted out what the soil does. When you're making shitty wine, whether you have great soil or bad soil, the end is just shitty wine. Now that you have the potential to make great wine, I think they've realized, they're fully aware now that there is this zoning, zonazione project that's worth doing, but they haven't really been messaging. They're not telling people. They, you know, I'm at a loss to explain why in a world that, in the wine world, that's been dominated by talk of terroir, I don't know, let's say for two decades, they haven't said 
You want terroir. We have great terroir. We're making great wines. You don't have to wait 20 years to drink it, to experience the terroir. And they cost 25 bucks. I've tried to find back vintage wines to taste over the coming months to include in the book. And the distribution for most of these producers is dismal. And it's really a sad state of affairs. Because if you could find a case of Chianti's, Chianti Reservers from everywhere, Chianti Classico, Pisane, all the subzones, and you put them in a box and you had a tasting, I think you'd be incredibly surprised in the diversity that you'd find. And that diversity to me, it really just reeks of potential because they have the diversity. They're figuring out how to make the great wines and nobody knows about it yet. Gregory Del Piazza has been trying to understand the message of Chianti so that he can better communicate it to you. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. Always a pleasure. Gregory Del Piazza is writing a book on Chianti in Tuscany. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L-drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.